The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn if you would with me to Romans chapter 10 and uh, as you do that again let me um, thank you on behalf of Rhonda and myself for your warm hospitality and the weeks that we have uh, had the privilege of worshiping with you and been able to bring the word to you if you know how much that embarrassed her uh, getting pointed out in front of all these folks you would do it again you really would Um, but we've been very, we've been very glad to be with you. You've been very welcoming to us, and uh, just so encouraging uh, to to have a congregation that is so used to the preaching of the word that it loves the preaching of the word. And it's to a text that talks about that that we turn this morning when we look at Romans chapter ten, verses one to seventeen. So I'd invite you to listen as I read in your hearing the word of God. In Romans chapter 10, verse 1 to 17. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, Who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we've been able to lift our voices and hearts to you in praise already. What a wonder of grace that false and foul as we are in and of ourselves, through the merits and mediation of Jesus, 
we might come boldly before the throne to offer the fruit of our lips and the overflow of our hearts in praise. O Lord, now we pray that as Your Word is open to us, You would speak to us by Your Spirit. Address our hearts and our minds. Lord, we would pray, as we've just read, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, that to some, You would give faith. To others, You would build faith. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher to the ends that God has determined. In Jesus' name, amen. Samuel Miller was one of the fathers of the Orthodox American Presbyterian movement in the 19th century. In 1835, he delivered an address titled, The Earth Filled with the Glory of the Lord. In it, he expressed a great vision for the advance of Christ's cause in the world. He said that with respect to evangelizing the world, our plans, our efforts for promoting this object ought to be large, liberal, and ever-expanding. When we direct our attention to the spread of the gospel, our views, our prayers, our efforts are all too stinted and narrow, said Miller. We scarcely ever lift our eyes to the real grandeur and claims of the enterprise in which we profess to be engaged. We are too apt to be satisfied with small and occasional contributions of service to this the greatest of all causes. Instead of devoting to it hearts truly enlarged, instead of desiring great things, instead of expecting great things, praying for great things, and nurturing in our spirits that holy elevation of sentiment and affection which embraces in its desires and prayers the entire kingdom of God. That's old school Presbyterianism. Romans chapter 10 is one of the great cause-shaping passages of Scripture where that vision is made compellingly clear. We have to understand that the Apostle Paul has not yet personally met the church in Rome. He's written this great letter from which we get so many great doctrines. He's written it to secure their partnership in his apostolic mission beyond where he's already been. So throughout the letter, what he does is describe the glorious message that Christ has entrusted to him for the mission that Christ has commissioned him for. Romans chapter 10, he opens up his heart. He opens up his heart for Christ's mission. He opens up his confidence in Christ's message and his commitment to Christ's method. And so from this passage, we learn this life, reality, transforming truth for churches and people who aspire to an apostolic pattern for their ministry. Here it is, a heart compelled by Christ's mission will have confidence in Christ's message and be committed to Christ's method. A heart that is compelled by Christ's mission will have confidence in Christ's message and be committed to Christ's method. Follow with me as we look in verse 1 and we see a heart compelled for Christ's mission. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, 
this is Christ's authorized, Spirit-inspired spokesman who could say to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And what he's doing here is revealing what moves him in ministry. He's disclosing his heart. And what we find is he has a heart for lost people. This past week I was speaking with a friend who just returned from a professional trip to India. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a ministry trip or a mission trip, but in his first exposure to that nation of 1.3 billion people, the Lord put on his heart a great burden for the cause of Christ there. And as he spoke to me on the phone, this very well-educated, highly accomplished professional man said to me, John, they're all going to hell. And it struck me how long it is and how very little I hear it expressed that way anymore. But that's the way the apostle felt as he penned this letter to the church in Rome. In this case, his burden is for people who actually had the benefit of God's Word, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, Israel. And that one line, Spirit-inspired testimony, right at the beginning of the verse, becomes even more compelling when you realize where it appears in the book of Romans. This is the first thing from his heart to his pen right after he's written Romans chapter 9. We say, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. We could have figured that out by flipping the page for ourselves. Why is that so compelling? Because chapter 9 is where the apostle has disclosed and defended the glorious doctrine of sovereign election. Chapter 9 extols the glory of God in His sovereign determination of who will receive His saving mercy and who will be vessels of wrath. So now when he turns the page to pen chapter 10, the first thing coming from his heart is, because God is sovereign in salvation, I'm not really affected whether people are lost or not. It's all academic and theoretical anyway. It's not what he says. I recall participating in an interview with a man who was a candidate for ministry. And he was gifted head and shoulders above any of us doing the interview. When we started to examine his theology, it was a clinic. He took us to school. And then one of the interviewers turned and asked him about a frontline evangelistic ministry that he had told us he was engaged in. As the interviewer asked the question, the man's face became intentionally apathetic. And the interviewer asked him, he said, have you seen any fruit? And with a tone of real condescension, he said, well, no fruit. No fruit. As if, why should that bother me? See, what he had done is he had taken the glorious biblical truth that all fruit is God's sovereign prerogative, election, to mean that he got to be apathetic about the salvation of the souls that he claimed he was out there evangelizing. There is a subtle, insidious temptation for us who delight in the biblical doctrines of God's sovereign grace. There's an insidious temptation to co-opt that glorious theology to insulate our own complacency. Rather than being moved and committed from the heart to bring in a harvest of souls for the glory of God. And unless you think I'm making too much of one phrase in one chapter, this isn't the only place that Paul actually expresses this heart. 
He did it at the beginning of chapter 9 before He defends and declares sovereign election. Here's what He says at the beginning of chapter 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And it's not just for Israel that Christ's spokesman has this heart. In fact, the whole letter, this great doctrinal epistle, is bookended with, with these statements of passion for mission. Chapter 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but this far I have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you. Don't tell me Paul was not concerned for fruit as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then toward the end of the letter, Romans 15, 15, he defines his whole ministry this way, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Friends, the Holy Spirit has just given us a window into the heart of the servant who spoke for Jesus. And what fueled his heart was the mission to fulfill God's saving purposes among all people. The heart of Christ's servant was compelled by Christ's mission to save an innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation who would produce a harvest of eternal praise to the glory of God. Another old school Presbyterian in the 19th century, Archibald Alexander, said this, if the Christian church felt her obligation to her Lord and Redeemer as she ought, the whole body would be like a great missionary society whose chief object was to spread the gospel over the whole world. The point is that an apostolic ministry, a biblically reformed ministry, will have a heart compelled for Christ's mission. And if you're compelled for Christ's mission, you're also going to be grounded in confidence in Christ's message. That's our second point this morning. The history of the church is littered with examples of preachers and churches who use a concern for mission to tinker with the gospel message. I recall many years ago now sitting across from an old friend a theologian who was rapidly departing from biblical truth. And as we had a conversation and I tried to persuade him to return to the biblical truth, the biblical gospel, he leaned into the conversation and he intoned to me, you see, my concern is missional. And I leaned back and as graciously as I could, I could say, so is mine. And if you depart from the biblical message, you don't have a biblical mission. Verses 2 to 13, the Apostle Paul gives us a description and a defense of the message as growing right out of the scriptures that God had given to Israel. And for the sake of this one installment sermon, let me give you the tweetable version of what verses 2 to 13 say. Here it is Acquittal of guilt and acceptance with God is based not on your work at righteousness, but on Christ alone received by faith alone. That's the message that gets unrighteous people and self-righteous people saved. 
Acquittal of guilt and acceptance with God is based not on your work at righteousness, but on Christ alone received by faith alone. It's not about your religious background. It's not about your moral performance. It's not about your social status. It's not about your ethnic roots, no matter where you're from, what you've done, or who your people are. Acquittal from guilt and acceptance with God is based not on your work at righteousness, but on Christ alone, received by faith alone. Christ, revealed in the Scriptures, is God's righteousness for everyone who believes in Him. That's the message. What I want to do is take you on a brief tour of this razor-like, complex, sharp message that the Apostle gives to us. So dig in with me for a couple of minutes. Verse 2-4, to four, the people on his heart are disobediently unrighteous because they trust their own self-made righteousness rather than the righteousness God gives. See, there's a futile, false righteousness that humans seek to create through our own character, through our own works a human man-made righteousness and then there's the righteousness of God the righteousness that reveals the character of God and is given by God in Jesus that's the only righteousness that gets us acquitted of our guilt and accepted before God see here's our problem we are zealous to stand on our own performance and work as something that puts God in debt to give us his approval And that self-righteous zeal can actually look religious or it can look very secular. See, if you're a religious person, that self-righteous zeal looks like a trust in your own ability to keep the traditional code and to keep the conduct. I trust my diligence in keeping the religious routines, the moral codes to put God in my debt. If you're a post-everything secular person, It looks like being passionate for the new social orthodoxy. I'm on the right side of history. I'm enlightened. I'm engaged in the right social causes. So if there is a God, He must be on my side because I'm socially responsible. Here's the point of verses 2-4. to It doesn't matter how zealous you are for your man-made code of righteousness, secular or religious. If you're not trusting only Jesus, you're ignorant of God's righteousness and you're actually disobedient to it. The righteousness of God, the righteousness that leads to salvation is the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone imputed to us by faith alone. So for everyone who believes... Christ is the end of attempts at salvation based on law. Christ is the end. Believers have said, no more trusting my own efforts. No more trusting my own merits. Righteousness is Christ alone. Verses 5-8 to show that despite their objections from his kinsmen, that message was there in the Old Testament. It's not novel, it's not new. He references Leviticus 18.5 and Deuteronomy 30.12-14 to demonstrate that even Moses pointed to the righteousness of God through faith. And his point is this, that what was said in those Old Testament passages speaks of Christ 
and the message of faith that we proclaim. You see, despite their objections, you have to go up into heaven to bring it down. You have to go down into the grave to bring it up. Moses said, no, the Word is near you. Christ has come down from heaven. And after sinlessly obeying God's law and being crucified for sinners, Christ has been raised from the dead. And his point in all of this argument is Christ, whom we proclaim, is the revelation of the righteousness that even Moses pointed to. That is the word of faith we proclaim. You add to that the glorious good news that all any sinner has to do to receive Him as their righteousness is to believe in Him. That's the eternity-altering point in verses 9-13. to He goes to the Old Testament again. Isaiah 28, 16, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Joel 2, 32, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How, how does this Scripture revealed saving righteousness through Jesus become mine? Just believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, wait a minute. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my background. You don't know my family of origin. There has to be some spiritual hurdles for me to jump over. There has to be some sacrificial hoop for me to crawl through. There has to be some kind of hocus-pocus penance that I have to do. No. The Scripture says, believe in Jesus Christ raised from the dead and He will give you His righteousness. That's the message you can have confidence in for your salvation. That's the message you can have confidence in for the salvation of people who are on your heart. People that you pray for. People that you try to live the Gospel in front of. People that you speak the Gospel to. Acquittal of guilt and acceptance with God is based not on works of righteousness that we do, but on Christ alone received by faith alone. That's Christ's message. And we must have confidence in it in Christ's mission. Well, how does that message get out? How does that message get proliferated to those whom God wants to get it to? See, a heart that's compelled on Christ's mission and confident in Christ's message asks the how question. That's what Paul does in verses 14 to 17. Notice his little logical sequence. How are they to call on Him in whom they do not believe? How are they to believe in Him whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Sometimes, when people in churches become deeply committed to the unchanging Gospel, they stop asking the how question. They descend into an exclusively conserve and defend mode and stop asking how to get the good news out to more and more people. Sometimes, when people in the church become compelled by the mission, they become pragmatists and they adopt all sorts of silly ends justifies the means methods in the name of getting more people in the door. Here's what the Apostle gives us in this passage. The mission-hearted Apostle asks, how? How do we get the message to those God has ordained to hear it? And he gives us Christ's method. Here's the method. Christ sends a preacher. 
The preacher preaches Christ. The people hear Christ. They believe Christ. They call on Christ. Everyone who calls is saved. That's the method. And if that little sequence of methodology questions teaches us anything, it teaches us about the priority of preaching and sending preachers in Christ's cause. Because the preaching of the Gospel is the way that Christ Himself gets His mission done in the hearts and lives of those He died for. Now maybe if you were awake when we read through those verses, you might have noticed that we missed the little of in the middle of verse 14. And you thought, well, the guest preacher has, needs a new set of glasses or he fell asleep in his own sermon, but we'll be patient and polite because he's the guest preacher. But it was actually quite deliberate because the option given to you in the footnote of the ESV is actually more accurate. It's a better translation. How are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? So in verse 17 when it says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ, the Word of Christ is not only the Word about Christ, it's actually the Word of Christ. The Word Christ speaks. Christ's Word through the preachers Christ sends who faithfully preach Christ's Word. Christ preaches still. Do you know how Jesus executed the mission He was sent on during His earthly ministry? His first sermon in His home synagogue in Nazareth gives us the answer. Luke chapter 4, He stood up and He said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me because He's anointed Me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent Me to proclaim, preach, liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then at the end of Luke 4, He gives them as close as you come to a personal mission statement from Jesus. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was sent as the preacher to preach. After He was raised from the dead, that's how He told His disciples to extend the mission. Luke chapter 24, as He meets with His disciples and He shows them that the whole Old Testament points to Christ. And then it says that because of Him, listen, repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed, preached in His name to all nations. You're witnesses of these things. Jesus' method in His earthly ministry, in His state of humiliation, and in His resurrected state was to preach and send His disciples to preach. So Paul knew when those Christ had sent to preach, preached the ascended Christ preaches. The end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 26, there's this remarkable statement as Paul makes his defense to King Agrippa. Here's what he says, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Old Testament points to Christ. That the Christ must suffer and that by, listen, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and the Gentiles. Who did the proclaiming? Christ raised from the dead. How did Christ raised from the dead proclaim to the Gentiles? Through Paul and the preachers that he sent. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, he can say this, for he himself is our peace, who's made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. 
He, the ascended Christ, came and preached to those who were far off. How did the ascended Christ come and preach to Gentiles? Through the preachers that He sent. In the preaching of the preachers that Christ sends, the ascended Christ preaches still. Friends, this is why the faithful preaching of the Word has the power to raise the dead to life. This is why the faithful preaching of the Word has the power to save sinners. This is why the faithful preaching of the Word has the power to sanctify saints. Because in the faithful proclamation of His Word, the exalted Christ, by His Spirit, speaks to the hearts and the minds of everybody that He died to save. No wonder Paul returns to the Old Testament and says how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It was this kind of apostolic vision and conviction that caused the reformers to put the pulpit back in the middle of the church. To picture the priority of preaching in the church's ministry and the church's mission. John Calvin so held to this apostolic conviction that here's how he described the faithful preaching of the Word. If our Lord gives us this blessing of His Gospel being preached to us, we have a sure and infallible marker that He is near us and procures our salvation and that He calls us to Him as if He had His mouth open and we saw Him there in person. Christ sends the preacher. The preacher preaches Christ. The people hear Christ. They believe Christ. They call on Christ. Everyone who calls is saved. That's Christ's method. When Calvin appealed to the church to send their young men to Geneva to be trained as preachers for the movement that we now call the Reformation, he put the call out to the church in France this way. Here's what he said. Send us your wood and we'll send you back arrows. Friends, our nation and the nations need a new generation of that sacred army, Christ-centered, Spirit-filled, mission-hearted preachers of the Word. Churches that are compelled on Christ's mission and committed to Christ's message must prioritize the preaching of the Word in their lives and in their ministries. And so I have three applications for you, then I'm done. Number one, you have to pray for your pastors to be preachers. You have to provide them the time and resources to be preachers. And you have to listen well when the Word is preached. Number two, you know that it is from the church that Christ actually sends His preachers. Seminaries like the one that I serve in, all we get to do is sharpen the arrows. You send them. So if you're compelled by Christ's mission and you're committed to Christ's message, would you pray that in this generation, maybe from even the sons of your own church, that God would raise up a sacred army of Christ-centered, Spirit-filled, mission-hearted heralds of the Word of God. And maybe God might even call some of you to join up in Christ's cause.
Number three, everyone who is joined to Jesus by faith and indwelt by the Holy Spirit because of Christ has the privilege and the responsibility to take the word preached and carry it to their neighbors and to the nations. The way that Jesus proliferates the preaching of the Word beyond the walls of the church is that you go with the gospel you hear and you give it to your neighbors. A heart compelled by Christ's mission will have confidence in Christ's message and be committed to Christ's method. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we stand in wonder at Your character, at Your wisdom, at Your plan. We praise You for the freedom of Your Gospel. So good, it's almost hard to believe, but that's exactly what You call us to do. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray once again that if there would be one within the sound of this sermon who has yet to put off their own attempts at righteousness and turn to Jesus alone, that, oh God, in Your mercy, would You please give faith to believe. And then, Lord, for the saints at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, would You, by Your Spirit, renew a compulsion on Christ's mission, a commitment to Christ's message, And Lord, would you protect them and prosper them as they are committed to the preaching of the Word. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people say, Amen. Amen.